Welcome, friends, fans, colleagues. Uh, this is Karen Tate, and uh, it's Wednesday, so uh, you know it must be uh, Voices of the Sacred Feminine Day. And uh, that little snippet uh, you were listening to uh, is called Maria uh, by a band from across the pond called Be Optimistic, and it is their tribute uh, to Maria, uh, a.k.a. Mary, a.k.a. the Sacred Feminine. And um, today, uh, I'm so glad to have back with me. I've not uh, had him here on the show for quite some time, uh, Matthew Fox. Uh, Matthew uh, has a, a Ph.D. He's an author. He's a theologian. He's an activist priest, um, you know, who was evicted from the Dominican order uh, by order of the Vatican under Pope John Paul II and uh, that guy Cardinal Ratzinger. Uh, definitely an ally of all of our listeners out there. Um, he's been calling people of spirit and conscious into the creation spirituality lineage for over 50 years. He's got 37 books out there. He lectures. He does retreats. Uh, innovative education models uh, have ignited um, an international movement to awaken people uh, to be mystics, prophets, uh, contemplative activists uh, who honor and defend the earth and work for justice. Um, all of that comes under uh, Reverend Matthew Fox's umbrella. Uh, he's also going to tell us about uh, something he's got going starting tomorrow uh, you'll want to hear about. Uh, but uh, for his lifetime, uh, Reverend Matthew Fox, uh, he has been seeking to establish a new uh, uh, pedagogy. Is that is that how you say that word, Matthew? Pedagogy. Pedagogy. Yeah. You Thank, know, you. Thank you. Educational model. Mm-hmm. Educational model, okay, because all of us aren't uh, quite so academic. Thank you. Um, he's been seeking uh, to establish a new pedagogy. I, I can't get that pedagogy. one out. I'm sorry. Uh, for, <laughs> pedagogy uh, for learning spirituality uh, that was grounded in an effort to reawaken the West to its own mystical traditions and such figures such as Hildegard of Bingen, uh, Meister Eckhart, and the mysticism of Thomas Aquinas, uh, as well as interacting with contemporary scientists who are also mystics. Uh, and he founded the University of Creation Spirituality. And today uh, he's back on the show because uh, we're going to be talking about Thomas Aquinas and uh, Hildegard of Bingen. Uh, he's got a book out, uh, a new book, The Tao of Thomas Aquinas, Fierce Wisdom for Hard Times. And um, I was surprised, Matthew, I have to say, I don't think about, uh, you know, uh, you know these uh, guys from that period of time uh, as feminists, uh, or you say proto-feminist, but apparently Thomas Aquinas, um, besides being a scientist and an intellectual, you uh, say he was a feminist. Um, tell us more about that. Well, I'm happy to, Karen, and thank you for welcoming me to your program, and I love your title, Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Um, yes, as I say, I call Aquinas a proto-feminist because um, he was all about non-dualism. And Rosemary Luther, the uh, marvelous um, Catholic feminist theologian, she says the essence of feminism is non-dualism. And the essence of patriarchy, therefore, is dualism. And what Aquinas did, he stood up to, like, I'd say, seven centuries of dualism. Because before him, so much theology was based on Plato. And Plato was, an, was eminently dualistic. He said, um, you know, he separated spirit from matter. And Augustine, the Christian theologian in the fourth century, was a follower of Plato and super dualistic, he said that um, uh, spirit is whatever is not matter. Whereas Aquinas says, no, he says, spirit is the elan, the vitality in everything, whether it's a blade of grass or a horse or a tree or a human. So that Aquinas has this understanding of spirit that is utterly non-dualistic. And that's why he turned his back on Plato and he wrote 12 books of commentary on Aristotle because he said, I prefer Aristotle to Plato because Aristotle does not denigrate matter. <coughs> Pardon me. 
So I think there we have a tremendous statement about the the foundation of a um, of a feminist philosophy, just like Luther says, non-dualism. And Aquinas paid a tremendous price for his courage. For example, after he died, he was condemned three times by three different bishops for his teaching about the consubstantiality of matter and spirit, body and soul. In other words, for his non-dualism. So really, um, he was a non-dualist, and therefore, I call him a proto-feminist because his biology, which he got from Aristotle, was certainly tainted, and he didn't understand women well. But as a philosophy, he put his neck out his whole life long in favor of non-dualism, therefore, I would say, of a feminist view of the world, that wisdom and spirit flow through all beings, all creatures, all cultures, and all of us. And that, to me, is, is deeply feminist. So, um, so Matthew, I hate to ask you to break it down even a little bit simpler, but, you know, I'm sure... Um, I'm sure some of my listeners uh, might not know about dualism, might not know about Aristotle and uh, and Plato. And you've broken it down a little bit, but is it possible to um, make it a little bit more relevant, maybe to the goddess advocate? Um, what, you know, how, how does do? Why is dualism? Uh, in opposition to, say, um, uh, sacred feminine liberation theology? Well, um, you alluded to Mary as a goddess earlier, and of course, um, in just before Aquinas' day, Aquinas lived in the 13th century, but in the late 12th century, there was a, the return of the goddess, in this great renaissance of the 12th century, and she inspired a new version of education. The university was invented then at the end of the 12th century, and Aquinas is very much part of the university, but a new love of nature and finding the sacred in nature. And Aquinas says, and I quote, he says, Revelation comes in two volumes, nature and the Bible. So he's not, he's not stuck on just the Bible. Rather, he sees all of nature, and he sees the whole cosmos, and that's what wisdom is. Remember, wisdom herself is feminine. She's feminine in the Bible. She's feminine around the world. And, and Aquinas is, is so big on, on wisdom that he's trying to bring the feminine right to the heart of learning, to the heart of, of worship, meditation, the divine feminine, because wisdom is, is another word for the divine feminine. And, um, and he was absolutely keen on that. And, um, again, he, 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 he stood up for it his whole life that knowledge is not enough, that we need wisdom as well. And wisdom includes the heart and the mind and the body. And Aquinas was so uh, pro-body, he says that there's this marvelous communion, marvelous communion between the soul and the body. In other words, we should not be putting down the body. We should not be, um, or should I say, uh, separating uh, our emotions, our feelings, including our anger. He celebrates our anger to our moral outrage. We should not be separating that from our spirituality. The spirituality is about finding peace uh, within all of our, our experiences, including the experience of, of love and sexuality and our relationship to all the rest of nature. And he emphasizes how nature itself is, uh, is a revelation of God. That, that by meditating on nature, and it can be, it can be work of science, and uh, or the work of just going into the forest, or being at the ocean, or the river, or someplace. All this is is sacred, and uh, so he. And, and this is the playing out of his non-dualism. Well, and just and just one more little aspect of that to sort of point out to listeners, I think, is uh, you know when in dualism, you know when it's either one thing or the other, uh, mm-hmm. when they separate uh, the mind from the body or spirit, uh, that's kind of where women start to get into trouble in patriarchy, don't they? I mean, because women are associated with the body, anything with the body, anything with sexuality, anything. Uh, you know, is, is uh, either uh, tainted or taboo or evil or off limits, kind of like the uh, sin of Eve. Um, that whole thread, right? 
Yes, yes. And, you know, I think that uh, Clarissa Bencola Estes addresses that really wonderfully in her classic work on on the wild woman, you know. And, and so the whole sense of wildness, as she says, we have to be in touch with women, all of us, but especially women because they've been advised otherwise by men. But I have to be in touch with our passions, with our instincts, she says, to get the soul back. And... Um, Many women have been instructed otherwise. And so that is, again, why why Aquinas is really a very revolutionary figure, uh, especially in the male world, to have stood up uh, to celebrate passion. Uh, He says, for example, about anger, he says, a trustworthy person who's angry at the right people for the right reasons expresses it in the appropriate manner and for the appropriate length of time. So that's just very wise. I mean, he's saying to pay attention to your anger. Don't sit on it. Don't run from it. Don't become passive-aggressive and be, pretend it's not in us, but to deal with it reasonably and, and, and don't get married to your anger. Don't, don't let it run your life. But take it, that passion as a fire in your belly that can help you to change and to be an agent for other people's change, the transformation of society and, and culture. So uh, he's, a, he's a friend to prophets. He's a friend to, to all those who are outraged by uh, what's happening with the climate, what's happening with coronavirus, what's happening with um, racial uh, abuse by policemen of uh, people of color, and what's happened for hundreds of years in the name of slavery and genocide. So he would be very much, in fact, Dr. Martin Luther King quotes him, quotes Aquinas in his famous iconic letter from Birmingham jail. He quotes Aquinas because Aquinas says that justice and conscience are more important than human-made laws. And sometimes you have to dis- disobey the laws, and you might go to jail, as King was aware, uh, but because you have to put your conscience first. And justice, the common good, he said, comes before the individual um, uh, Rights, really. Uh, individual rights are important, but the common good is more important. Well, and it all—it reminds me, too, I think it was Thomas Jefferson that said that, you know, you shouldn't be patriotic to a government, but patriotic to your country. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, there comes a time that you have to rise up uh, to injustice, and that's not, an, you know, uh, uh, counter to uh, being a patriot. In fact, uh, it's just the opposite. Patriotism is standing up to uh, the injustice of the government. Right. Well said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, all right. So, uh, so Aquinas, you mentioned that in his time, though, it doesn't sound like he was appreciated. Um, is he only being <laughs> discovered in more con- in in more contemporary times? Well. Um, after he died, about was it, 50 years after he died, they named him a saint and a doctor of the church, like they did to Hildegard of Bingen just a couple of years ago. Um, so, but they kind of put him on a pedestal, and and I think they missed they missed a lot of, of what he was really saying. And that's why I I've written two books on him, and especially this this short one that you just mentioned, the Dial of Thomas Aquinas, Fierce Wisdom for Hard Times, because I think he's been misinterpreted by a lot of theologian types who, who live in their heads and in their left brains and don't realize what a, what a revolutionary he was in terms of bringing in this non-dualism and, and conscience and justice. And this term, the common good, which I just love, uh, it, I just looked it up the other day on Google. They said the, the first statement was Thomas Aquinas is the one who brought the idea of the common good into Western thinking. But the last person to use it was Aristotle, who, of course, lived, what, 1,500 years before him. So Aquinas deserves a great credit for even that term, common good, because I think when you think about ecology today, now, there, too, Aquinas is an absolute champion. Remember, he came right after Francis of Assisi, who came right after Hildegard of Bingham. So this whole lineage of Christ's spirituality that honors nature and creation as a source of wisdom and divinity, this is very alive. But Aquinas, in many ways, takes it even further. He says, for example, salvation means primarily and first of all, preserving things in the good. 
preserving things in the good. Now, notice, he's not talking about going to heaven or avoiding hell. He's talking about doing something, preserving things in the good. And what is an ecological environmental crisis like ours today, including climate change and coronavirus, which is part of it, what is that if not preserving things in the good? We want to carry on the health of the planet, the health of our relationships to all the planet and other creatures, to future generations. And, and that's what preserving in the good means. So it's an, a very activist um, a definition of salvation. It's not about getting to heaven and, 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 and condemning others. It's about rolling our sleeves up and doing something on behalf of Mother Earth because future generations, whom we claim to be in love with, our grandchildren and the rest, future generations depend on us to do, take responsibility. So, so Matthew, let me, of the environment. so let me ask you a peripheral question, you know, something that is relevant to today's headlines. Um, you're, you're, you know, you're talking about Aquinas being associated with the common good. And so the, the common good today, uh, you know, we're seeing this, you know, this battle play out, um, you know, with, the, with wearing masks, for instance. And, uh, and, and I'm going to connect some dots that I think connect in my head. You know, maybe, maybe there's a disconnect, and you're welcome to tell me if there's a disconnect. But I'm seeing, you know, um, Trump, who is supported by so many uh, evangelicals, the religious right, uh, so many of them are Christians. Um, what happened to the common good in Christianity? It seems like it's been... Um, given up for for greed, for selfishness. You don't have the message of Jesus there anymore, or so it seems. Um, where did, in my mind, Christianity has totally collapsed and has become a hypocrisy. Um, and you know, we have to reach back to people like Aquinas or Hildegard or Francis of Assisi, uh, you know, to to find these foremothers and forefathers. And, I mean, what, where did it all go wrong? Um, and is there anybody out there that still, uh, you know, is preaching the common good for for Christians? Well, I think all, all those comments and questions are, are really valuable and really important. Um, first of all, though, I, I would not accept the um, evangelical version of Christianity as being the whole story by any stretch of imagination. Uh, and, and it is interesting that what you point out, that in, in my own life, and I'm now pushing 80, um, I've had to go back to the Middle Ages, to Aquinas, to Meister Eckhart, to Hildegard of Bingen, to Francis of Assisi, and to Julian of Norwich, who, by the way, lived through a pandemic her entire life. When she was seven years old, the Black Death hit Europe, and it kept coming in waves her entire life. She died in her 80s. So she has a lot to say to us today about living through a pandemic, and she was deeply influenced by Meister Eckhart and Aquinas and her whole theology of goodness. But, um, but I think that there are pockets of, of authentic Christianity, people trying to be Christian today. For example, I think Pope Francis's encyclical on the environment, Laudate Si, is a very powerful work and he takes on he takes on the Wall Street and extractive capitalism. I mean um uh, Limbo called his encyclical Marxist. This Pope is a Marxist. Well, that's a pretty good endorsement, I would say. If Rush Limbo hates your writing and calls you a Marxist, I would look twice at that document because it could it could contain a lot of authentic Christianity in it because Rush Limbo hates it so much. Not only him, but, of course, his backers and, and the Wall Street tycoons who are making a lot of money on, 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 uh, on the, the shadow side of climate change and environmental destruction. So um, I think, for me anyway, it's been part of my life to try to look for what is, where is authentic Christianity because, like you say, a lot of it is bogus and hypocritical. And, and now let's just go back to the, 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 the concrete thing you mentioned of wearing masks. 
you know, I think a lot of that opposition from the right wing and Trump is a masculine thing, what I call toxic masculinity. These, these people somehow feel they're not in charge if they're wearing a mask. And um, uh, so, I mean, I wrote a whole book on that called The Hidden Spirituality of Men, Ten Men Are Forced to Awaken the Sacred Masculine. Because I think if we're going to be true feminists, we have to liberate men as well as women. Men have to learn to receive the goddess and all of her gifts and to recognize as a goddess in all men as well as in all women. And um, in, at the end of my book, I have two chapters on the sacred marriage of the divine feminine and the sacred masculine because in our lifetime, we've seen the goddess return, and that's a powerful, powerful, beautiful thing. She still has a lot of returning to do. But it's not enough that she returns. She deserves a, a worthy consort. She deserves the sacred masculine to return. And too many men and women, women too, are walking around with toxic masculinity. And so that whole subject of the, the masculine, the sacred masculine, has to be addressed, I think, by all of us, women and men alike. In fact, the first response to my book it came by email. It was from a woman. She said, I, I am a, a serious feminist. In my home library, I have over 200 books on the divine feminine, not one book on the sacred masculine. She said, I have two teenage sons. And until I read your book, I didn't realize how much men have suffered under patriarchy. And she said, what you're saying is true. This has to be the next stage of feminism. We have to assist our, our men, whether they be our brothers or our husbands or our sons or grandsons, to, to discover the healthy masculine. And we have to assist other women to do the same. So I think that's part of the crisis we're in, is that this masculine feminine thing, patriarchy versus feminine, is, is playing out at so many levels of our politics and our, our identities, and that's why some men are afraid to wear a mask. Imagine, they, they think they're super macho, but, but they're afraid of a little mask. Think about that. That's kind of odd. That's kind of odd and particularly isn't it? Ironic. <laughs> yeah, it's... Yeah, it it is pretty crazy, and um, I would have mm-hmm. hoped more people uh, would actually have caught on to that. You know, there's a lot of people who've written about toxic masculinity, and uh, maybe I, I'm sure I could have missed it, but I haven't seen much in the news uh, connecting the, um, you know, the, the mask-wearing resistance to uh, toxic masculinity. Um, you know, I, I hope maybe you'll do some articles in the uh, – in, and post them uh, out there in the world, Matthew, to try to get that idea across. Well, thank you. Uh, that's that's a nice invitation. You know, I have these daily meditations every morning. They're free. I put them out there. And um, I have been writing about things like this, but I will kind of uh, up the ante a little and be a little more blunt. But I, I have been writing about uh, the patriarchy and, and the sexism that's embedded in our way of seeing the world, in our structures, just as racism is. And all of it is about dualism, isn't it? It's about separating us from others, whether we be male or female, or whether we be gay or straight, or whether we be black or white, or indigenous or, or Asian. I mean, all of that is, is an attempt to divide. And, and that's why our, our initial conversation about non-dualism, you know what you can see, it's pouring through everything else we're talking about. It's really an important topic. And again, I give Aquinas so much credit for standing alone against dualism way back in the 13th century. Um, and of course, he had some predecessors like Hildegard of Bingen, who didn't take any nonsense from crazy men. You know, she wrote letters to popes and emperors and, and complaining. She told the emperor he's acting like a baby to man up <laughs> and put justice first. And she wrote the pope and said, he's surrounded, you're surrounded by, by evil men who cackle like like roosters, and, and, uh, and you should stand up and, and serve Lady Justice, she says, and stuff like that. I mean, she was a tiger, and, uh, and she didn't take nonsense from the, from the patriarch of her day either. And yet they made her a saint I, and, I want, and a doctor of the church. And, and, <laughs> it's really and, ironic. And, and, I want to get, and, and I want to get to her, and I want to talk a little bit more about uh, Thomas Aquinas. But I want to ask you, I want to ask you this. Um, you know, you, you, we're talking about dualism, you know, black and white, good and evil, male, female, right, left, all of that. Um, why is it humans um, have such a problem with 
the, that middle ground, that gray area, you know, nuance. Um, why does it have to be either or? I mean, is, is that something about our, how our brain is structured or uh, something about, you know, uh, I, I mean, you know, I'm sure some people, you know, maybe until today had never even heard the idea of dualism. But in their life, you know, they're choosing between one or the other. How does that happen? I mean, um, it, is, is this a valid point I'm making here? Or, um, it, you know, why is it we have to have one or the other? It seems like such simplistic thinking. Yes, I think it's a very important point you're making and question you're asking. Yeah, instead of either or, we can be thinking both and, both and. And then think of the uh, image of the of the Tao. You know, the Tao has this image of of, of um, black and white, and it's cu- the, it's curved. And then within the black, there is a white hole or a white spot. Within the white, there is a, a black spot. So um, we all contain uh, varieties and diversity in us. And I think you're right. I I would say the primary reason is laziness, intellectual laziness. And then, and but it's intellectual in the sense that um, because it feeds politics too. It's simplistic to say, "Oh, these guys are all bad, and I'm all right." You know, and I'm going to heaven, and they're all going to hell, or something like that. Um, or that women are inferior, and they're all hysterical, uh, and we're not. It's tribalism. I associate that with the first chakra, actually, because of a healthy first chakra. Is about connecting to the whole. It's about vibrations. And um, we now know that every atom in the universe is vibrating. And so uh, when you live in a cosmos, when you live in the real universe, you realize that everything's moving and everything is trying its best and everything is acting. But if you, if you shut down this sense of whole, the cosmos, the universe, and think only in terms of your own tribe, my tribe, whether I'm straight or whether I'm gay or whether I'm black or whether I'm white or whether I'm Christian or whether I'm Muslim or whether I'm atheist, my tribe is the only tribe. That is lazy thinking. And it doesn't, it, to me, it's part of our anthropocentrism, that is of our human centeredness. It's, it's the same reason that we're destroying Mother Earth, as if we're better than Mother Earth. What? Are you kidding? Mother Earth has been feeding us. We haven't been feeding Earth. And um, <coughs> so it's... Uh, Originally, they used to call it pride. I call it arrogance because I think pride actually is a virtue. I think part of good parenting and good teaching, therefore, is to develop the pride in our young people. So I don't see pride as a sin, but arrogance, yes. Arrogance is what is behind sexism and racism and homophobia and anthropocentrism, that my tribe is better than, than some other tribe. So that's the problem, I think, and I think we have we are waking up to that. That's what I think all this marching is about, and these protests today. I think even white people are beginning to pierce the the illusory bubble about white supremacy or white superiority that has dominated many centuries. How else could we justify slavery? And we did, or it wouldn't happen. Even our founding fathers did. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of waking up to do. And, of course, the, I'm thinking right now of indigenous people. I mean, we can talk about 400 years of slavery and racism and segregation, Jim Crow in, in America, but there have been 500 years of destroying the indigenous wisdom, the indigenous ways, and the beauty of the indigenous cultures. So we have to awaken to that, too. And who, who are the poorest people uh, in our, on our on our uh, in our country, it is the indigenous people shuttled away into their reservations. Some of which do not even have drinking water on them. One Indian told me that they have Pepsi Cola machines and Coca Cola machines on their res, but they don't have uh, healthy water on the res. Can you imagine that? And no wonder so many Indians have diabetes when they grow up as children, drinking Pepsi Cola and Coca Cola and not fresh water. Yeah. Yeah, and and well in bringing it back to Aquinas, um you you say that Aquinas uh, had a mindset uh like that of indigenous people. Is that because of his yes. um uh, you know his awake, you know, his uh reverence for nature? 
Yes, and because he was pre-modern. You see, your pre-modern consciousness, whether it's indigenous people or regarded being in Francis of Assisi and Aquinas, they see the world first in terms of the world itself. The cosmos comes first. Then they see the human. The modern era is all about the human. It's all about, well, like Descartes, I think for I am. Well, good for you, Mr. Descartes. How about the we? Where's the we in that, huh? You think you're here? It brought, it brought 13.8 billion years brought you here. Maybe you ought to think about that a little bit, the history of the universe. So that kind of thinking has destroyed Mother Earth. It's literally what is bringing climate change and with it coronavirus down on all of us, that kind of human-centered thing, arrogance. Pope Francis calls it narcissism. It's the narcissism of our species, and I think he nails it with that word because narcissism is a disease. We've inherited narcissism from the modern consciousness. It's in our education. It's in our law. It's in our economics, our politics, yes, and in our religions too. But this pre-modern wisdom, whether Aquinas or Eckhart or Francis or Hildegard or indigenous wisdom, it doesn't begin with the human. It sees the human as a part. Like Hildegard said, humans are part of the web of creation. And think about what a web is. A web is flexible. A web is strong. It's flexible. There's give and take. But she says if humans take over that web through injustice and uncaring of the other creatures, she says God will allow creation to punish humanity. Now, she's not saying God is, is judging us with a, with a big lightning bolt. No, but the creation is. The, this web of creation is going to come back and, and get us humans if we think we're better than the rest of creation and we, we do nothing but extract from Mother Earth instead of, of nurture Mother Earth and keep her beautiful for future generations. So that, I think, Hildegard nails it there. That's what we're going through now. I think creation is fighting back. Mother Earth is, is uh, you know, is ejecting a, uh, a, a virus whose name is the human species at this time. Now, can we change it? Right. Yes, we can, but we can't wait around to do it. We've got to do it. Time's running out. Well, and... and- and, and let's shift over to Hildegard. Uh, uh, you know, let's assume that uh, some of my listeners are new to her. Uh, yes, she was a 12th century abbess. You've told us how she had the courage to speak truth to power. Um, I guess uh, it, it, speak about her mysticism and how did she manage to uh, not get burned at the stake uh, or something or, or at least, um, uh, you know, thrown out of the abbey uh, for speaking such truth to power how did she get away with it in her time well that's a good question um first of all though um abbesses in the 12th century were very powerful and remember that was the time of the crusades the 11th and 12th century so a lot of men had gone off to to um to jerusalem and all that and uh so it left a lot of women in charge if you've ever saw the movie lion in winter with um uh, or who's an actress? Uh, she won the Academy Award for it. Anyway, anyway, she plays Eleanor of Aquitaine, who is a very powerful um, woman. And um, uh, and in many ways, Hildegard and the Benedictine Order, the, the women's wing of the Benedictine Order, was very strong. For example, they owned a lot of land, um, her monastery, and. Um, and with that came power because the system was a feudal system, and that's w- where the land is more important than money, really. So um, that's one thing. But the abbess, by definition, had a lot of power at that time in history. But also, um, her very first book, when she wrote, I think she was 42, she wrote her first book called Shivias, No Other Ways. By the way, it contained the, o- contains the oldest opera in the West, 300 years older than any other opera was Hildegard's opera, and it's in a book. Uh, in that book, uh, she not only writes about science and theology and so forth, but she has an opera, and she also has paintings, because uh, she painted mandalas and these visions that she had. So that alone tells you about her, how creative she was. She was an artist. She was a musician, first-class musician, totally original. She did things with a Gorian chant that no, no one's ever done before since. I call it erotic Gorian chant. 
and and um, and she wrote this opera, and um, and her, her sisters played the the opera. They put it on uh, as a as a play, and um, so anyway, she was strong in herself, but she had this like Aquinas. Her strength come her came from her conviction that the spirit was working through her, and um, she didn't take a lot of nonsense. Now, when her first book came out, famous man Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, a monk, he loved the book. And he praised it and gave a copy of the Pope, and the Pope endorsed it. So at that time, if a Pope endorsed your book, hey, you were off and running. It became a bestseller. Now, in my day, when the Pope denounced my book called Original Blessing, my book became a bestseller. So today, <laughs> history has, has reversed itself. Um, but anyway, uh, back then, when the Pope held your book up as a good book, wow, things happened. So a lot of young women joined Hildegard's monastery because they read her book and heard about her and said, hey, this is exciting. I mean, here's a woman writing a famous book with opera, with paintings. You know, I want to study with her. I want to be like her. So um, she had a very strong following, and, and she, had, she was invited to preach in churches and cathedrals all over Europe, Switzerland, Germany, um, France, and so forth. And um, we have letters from from one bishop saying, people are still talking about your the, the talk you gave here. Will you send me a copy? And this is like three months after she left town. So um, she had a following, and for good reason. For And they were kind of scared of her because her she talked about her own vision. She compared herself to the apostles and to the writers of the Bible. And in one of her books, she warns people, don't change any word I've written or God will come and get you. <laughs> So, uh, so she had a, a pretty good interpretation of her own vocation, you know. She she paints a picture of herself where she, the Holy Spirit is coming um, down on her head like in fire, forms of fire, just like the disciples at Pentecost. So I think a lot of men kind of backed away because they thought, hey, this lady is closer to God than I am, so I better be careful. I don't want her to denounce me. <laughs> So, well, wow, and and, and and you, I don't know, you you almost have to think if you believe in such things, um, you know, maybe God was even, God or goddess was protecting her, because I can imagine uh, she probably threatened or challenged the male patriarchy, and uh, I mean, when you consider how you know, how powerful the church was, you know, how afraid of science mm-hmm. and uh, everything like that they were. It, it's it's pretty amazing she um, got away with it all, I think. And she was a scientist. In fact, she says, and this is a quote, all science comes from God. And um, she, she'd been given credit for discovering vitamins and the need to uh, uh, have clean water and all that. Uh, and she did a lot of... Um, a growing of herbs and healing. She was a healer, and she even developed the whole philosophy of medicine that, in fact, is being used today. There's a clinic in Switzerland built entirely around Hildegard's teachings on healing and medicine, and it includes diet, but many other things. And and it's been going for now three generations. It's been going for over 50 years. So obviously it's working, and they wouldn't still be in business. And they have doctors, real MDs, working there at a clinic but it's all built around Hildegard's um, medical uh, theories. And, um, yeah, but also one thing that I take delight in is that it was Pope Benedict XVI who canonized her a saint and made her a doctor of the church. And there aren't many women doctors of the church. There are only three or four. So it's a big deal. But what's less ironic is, well, in my, I wrote this book, one of my three books on Hildegard. I wrote, I started to write the moment I heard they were going to canonize her a saint because I said to myself, I don't want the Vatican giving their spin on Hildegard. I want a more solid version. So um, so the very last chapter of my book called Hildegard a Being and a Saint for Our Times, yeah, the conclusion chapter is called Hildeg- Is Hildegard a Trojan Horse Entering the Gates of the Vatican? Because I think that's exactly right because I don't think Ratzinger knew what he was doing. I don't think he knows Hildegard at all well. Hildegard is, is all about the divine feminine. And so she is a Trojan horse. They made her a doctor of the church. They made her a saint. And now she's in the bosom of the church talking. If you listen carefully to what she's saying, she's talking about the goddess. She she calls Mary the ground of all being, the ground of all being. 
you began this program with a song about Mary the goddess. But the ground of all this thing, oh my God, that is one of the most profound names for divinity. Uh, Eckhart used it 150 years after Hildegard. But she applies it to Mary, the goddess, the ground of all being. That's just one example of, of 50 that I point out in my book are Hildegard explicitly naming the divine feminine as being at the heart of our, our spiritual journey, of our creation itself, of mother wisdom. She says, you are encircled by the arms of the mystery of God. Just, just feel that. You, we are encircled by the arms of the mystery of God. That's pure maternal imagery. That's God as mother right there. And, um, and um, so anyway, there's, there's this one image after another in Hildegard about the divine feminine. And I don't think the Pope who canonized her made it out of church had a clue what he was doing. That's right. I just love my naughty my naughty concluding <laughs> chapter in my book, that, that this is a Trojan horse. And people like you with a radio program about the Divine Feminine, hey, you should be leading the parade. You should read that short conclusion. It's only five or six pages. But there you go. You should be leading the parade of this Trojan horse. Get the, get the ladies out of the horse now. They're in the Vatican. Now get them out. Get them out of the horse and, and invading the Vatican. <laughs> So which what, what was the which which of your books had that in the as the final it's chapter Matthew Hildegard of Bingen Hildegard of Bingen a saint for our times and then the subtitle okay. was unleashing okay. the power in the 21st century yeah but I I love okay. God of Hildegard. Well, the the next thing I want to talk about is, uh, you know, you being evicted from the Dominican order. But but before uh, before I ask you that, what you just said about uh, Hildegard, you know, being in the bosom of the church, uh, I, I it. it it triggered this question, so forgive me uh, if this is a crazy question. But um, where do you come down on that? The idea of Pope Joan. Do you think she was real? Um, I don't have real strong opinions one way or the other. I think it's possible. I think it's possible. I don't deny deny its possibility. Um, it is a strange story, but you know, humanity is strange, and <laughs> and religion is okay. sometimes be super strange. So I just leave it that way. I I don't deny it, but <laughs> okay. um, but I don't affirm it because you know I don't know if we'll ever get the facts on that one. But it's within the realm okay. of possibility. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. All right. So, so getting back to your your personal story, uh, Matthew, because I mean, you, uh, you know, the church definitely, uh, you know, put you through the ringer. Um, so, uh, after 34 years, you're evicted from the Dominican Order, and uh, it's because you're a feminist uh, theologian. You call God. Uh, a woman, uh, I think because you also embraced indigenous people, wasn't that part of it too? Um, how how did that happen? I mean, was it because you were, t- I, I mean, speak to that a little bit. Um, there's something about the uh, seven objections of the two papacies. Right. I'm not even sure most people even know what that is. Um, can you explain uh-huh. that and, you know, kind of spoon feed us a little bit? Uh-huh. Yes, well, um, first of all, they silenced me for a year, and then, really, it was 14 months, actually, and then um, a few years after that, then they kicked me out of the Dominican Order, which I'd been a member for 34 years, and by the way, one thing I discovered working on Aquinas is that he was only a Dominican for some 20-some years because he died young. He died at 49, so I was a Dominican in good standing for more years than St. Thomas Aquinas was. I think that's kind of kind of amusing, actually, and ironic. But anyway, with their, they had seven objections to my work, and as you said, the first was that I'm a feminist theologian. The second is that I call God Mother. Well, I prove that all these medieval mystics call God Mother. Uh, certainly Julian of Norwich develops it tremendously. She's in the 15th century, but before her, Eckhart did. He says, what does God do all day long? God lies in a maternity bed giving birth. So, um, and then Hildegard calls God mother and so forth. So um, uh, this is in the tradition. And thirdly, that I prefer original blessing to original sin. Now, I think that was their real problem. My, my book called Original Blessing 
really blew the top off the roof at the Vatican under Pope John Paul II and then uh, Cardinal Ratzinger on the 16th. Because what I learned from their overreaction to that phrase, original blessing, is that they're really invested in original sin. Original sin is not in the Bible. No Jew will tell you they believe in original sin. Uh, there's a big difference between the story of the fall and the idea of original sin. That came in the 4th century from St. Augustine, this dualist, Satanist theologian who was incredibly anti-women. He said, man but not woman is made in the image and likeness of God. And uh, he was all hung up on sexuality, and uh, he just had a lot of neuroses. But anyway, um, they did not like that. And as you say, they also said, and I quote, he works too closely with Native Americans, unquote. Now, I don't know what that means, except I did have a sweat lodge uh, with a Native American who taught with us on our campus, which was a Catholic campus for for several years. I I presume they mean that. Uh, They're afraid of sweat lodges. Too much truth comes out in a sweat lodge, I guess. But um, there are other objections that... um, that I um, I talk about the four paths of Christianity instead of the three paths of purgation of the nation union. But anyway, it's a Rorschach test about where papacy then was, where patriarchy is in the papacy. Oh, that I call God child. They didn't like that I call God child. I don't know what they do on Christmas, but uh, they didn't like that either. That I quoted Eckhart, who says, God is novissimus, the newest thing in the universe, always new, always young. And they didn't like that. I think they're committed to being old. And by old, I mean having an old soul. Um, so anyway, that was their problem. And um, it still is with some of the people. But this new pope is different. And he, in fact, um, his, his encyclical, which is, I alluded to earlier, Laudate Si, was actually written by one of my students, a, a, a priest from the Philippines who was Irish, actually, missionary there. Uh, wrote 80% of that and said, go, he went through my master's program. So I like to say that I, I lived through 34 years of two popes who called my work, and this is a quote, dangerous and deviant, unquote. But um, now this new papacy is busy of plagiarizing my work. So that's kind of a nice uh, circle that I've lived through in my, in my life. <laughs> so, so would you say, looking back, um, Matthew, uh, was it a gift uh, being evicted from the Dominican order, or did they uh, did they do damage to you? <laughs> well, um, it was a gift insofar as it certainly got my teaching out to a lot more people, like I alluded to earlier. And Hildegard's day at the Pope and embraced your work. It was a good deal. More people heard about it. In our day, if the Pope condemns your work, then more people hear about it. So the media got on board and all that. So a lot more people heard about Christian spirituality. So they're silencing me first and then expelling me. But after you're expelled, especially in the Catholic Church, I mean, things really happen to you. For example, I mean, people tell me stories how they're, they're the bookstore of their church. Uh, one person said they brought a van and piled in all your books that were in our bookstore and carried them away. So Catholics no longer read my books, and even Catholic bookstores took all my books off the bookshelves and so forth. So, you know, you do pay a price, and the, and the ideas pay a price too, because, um, and you get denounced, and, and, you know, it's not just, you know, a man in the Vatican saying something. It dribbles down, and it puts wind in the sails of far right-wing people in the Catholic Church who have a lot of power and a lot of money, so they have their own newspapers and they spread all these words, these these tales and things. And uh, so, you know, it, and it's a very harmful effect. But as I point out in my book on the Pope called The Pope's War, which is a history of those two papacies, they condemned 108 theologians. I'm just one of 108, so I have to wear the badge lightly. You know, I, I, I have to be humble about this. But the point is they silenced 108 theologians from all around the world. And what this really does is it shuts down thinking in the Catholic Church. They shut down theology for a generation or two from, by doing things like that. And it's not just me. They silenced, you see. They silenced Leonardo Buff, who was the most read theologian in South America, and Eugene Drummond, the most read theologian in Europe. Three of us were all silenced the same year. So that's a, a, it was a political act, and that's how I understood it. And... Um, 
And but then from a personal point of view, of course, I feel a loss not being part of a fraternity like uh, the Dominicans were or I thought we were. Um, and I, some supported me, especially European and Dutch Dominicans, supported me very strongly. But many local ones, American ones, did not have the courage to, to support me. And uh, so that was personally kind of painful and disappointing, I would say is a better word. But uh, it wasn't a blessing, yeah. of course. In the long run, it's a blessing. I've lived a fuller life because of that. The Episcopalians took me in. I was able to work with young people to develop new modes of, of worship and celebration and ritual using rave, for example, in a mass, in masses. We've done over 100 of these. We did one at the World Parliament last, uh, last fall in Toronto. And uh, they're very powerful things. So, so I know that this is a blessing. And... Um, and um, but there is pain involved. Yeah, I would imagine uh, it always is a double-edged sword. But I'm glad there was definitely the gift in it as well. Um, I want to ask you about um, uh, Aquinas, who said joy is the human's noblest act. And, you know, that sort of strikes a chord with me, Matthew, because um, I, lately I've been on this uh, idea that um, humans, Christians, uh, I'm a former Catholic, I call myself a recovering Catholic, um, you know, we see Jesus up there on the cross, and uh, it, it seems to be all about suffering and sacrifice. Uh, but Christianity doesn't seem to be the only religion that, I don't know, it feels like they're brainwashing us to think suffering and sacrifice is noble uh, so that maybe we accept less in life. We don't say, where's the joy? Where's the quality of life? You know, it's more about enduring. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's just a personal thing for me these days, but is, is there anything to that? Um, and if Aquinas believed joy is the human's noblest act, is that also another way he runs counter to the sort of status quo, let's all suffer and, you know, suffer in silence and think we're noble for it? <laughs> Right. Well, that's a terrific uh, observation by you and a terrific question. I'm glad that you pick up on that line from Aquinas because it runs counter, not just to a lot of religion, but to a lot of patriarchy. Uh, you know, Adirond says that pessimism comes from a repression of creativity. And so there's a lot of joy in creativity, as you know, um, not only in birthing things, but also in in receiving what others birth, you know, think of music or think of theater or think of novels, good novels or something like that. So, so joy is everywhere if you're looking for it, and it's nowhere if you're not looking for it. And what you say is so true that this ideology of pessimism, of dying, of putting Jesus on the cross and using that as a primary symbol for Christianity, it, it carries a price with it. And remember, the cross was not a symbol of Christianity until the 4th or 5th century. The original uh, images for Christians, the earliest images, are the Good Shepherd and fishes. And, of course, that is, uh, was one reason the fishes caught on, is that it was the age of Pisces that had just passed when Jesus was around. I mean, it was just beginning, and it had just passed was the age of the ram. And the, the understanding of early Christians was that Jesus was the last lamb slain in the age of the ram, and that he, remember, he used language like fishermen and fishes and all this, and, and so the, he launched the age of, the, of Pisces, the age of fishes. And, um, but as you say, this was lost, and, you know, a lot of it has to do with the empire. I mean, if, if Christianity made one, if you just talk about one big detour, but one is the original thing, sin thing. But it happened at the same time. The other was empire building. When Christianity took over the empire in the 4th century, it also developed the ideology of original sin. And when you're running an empire, you want people to feel good about hurting, because <laughs> you're going to hurt them. And, um, and that's part of an empire. It is, also a power, it is always power over what I call in my recent daily meditations a sadistic, uh, relationship. That's what patriarchy is built on. That's what happened in the streets of Minneapolis when a white policeman knelt in a guy's neck in front of a camera, beaming to a camera, killing him over 
eight and a half minutes. So sadism is baked into patriarchy. It's baked into much of our of our culture, including academia, education, including I think the legal process, certainly the prison complex, and certainly uh, it's you find it in police forces and the rest. And it's it's, it's endemic to patriarchy. You know, Adrian Rich says that. Um, is a self-hatred that is baked into patriarchy. Patriarchy delivers self-hatred. And self, the, the step from self-hatred to hating others is a very short step. Because if you hate yourself, that, that's a masochism, then the sadism comes next. You hate others. If you can't love yourself, I mean, Jesus said, love others as you love yourself. If you're not healthy in your love of self, then you're not going to be healthy in your love of others. And so we're raining, I think, our self-hatred onto the rest of nature, that's the environmental crisis, onto people different from ourselves, whether women or, or um, people of color or what have you. So you're getting down to something really basic here, and yes, what you say is yes. By Aquinas, by putting joy forward, is turning all that inside out, inside out, the whole story inside out. And you know what else he says? Here's another quote from Aquinas. He says, sheer joy is God's, and this demands companionship. In other words, he's theorizing that the whole universe exists because of joy. The divine joy spilled over, because he says joy always wants to celebrate and to share. It, it's effusive. It wants to go out. And so all creation is so beautiful because it is joy-filled. And it, it comes from, as he says, the fountain of all joy. That's who God is. That's his definition, one of many, for divinity. The fountain of all joy. The, he says, the source without a source. And so we share in that. And yes, joy is our, our noblest act. What if we wanted to build, rebuild education on, on our noblest act? Why not build it around joy? Start with joy and then work down to how we should be educating the next generation. And, and work from that. So, yeah, you've really caught on to something there by your love of just that one insight from Aquinas. But he's so full. He has so many of those statements that are utterly revolutionary. And as you say, as you recognize, if we took them at all seriously, they would be reinventing religion, certainly reinventing Christianity, and a lot of it's bad news versus good news that has dominated in, in history. Well, and and to what you just said about rebuilding education, uh, if we put joy first, uh, the arts, I think, wouldn't be the first thing to get cut. (laughs) You know, it it, it almost feels like it's a conspiracy uh, to keep us down uh, because, um, you know, otherwise we would rise up against the status quo. Exactly. Keep us down and keep us consuming. And, and keep selling us yes. stuff, telling us that this is where happiness is, more potato chips, new refrigerators, shinier cars. You know, that whole system of capitalism is built on original sin. I call it the secular version of original sin. The idea that we don't have what we, we don't have our capacity for joy within us. We have to buy it from the outside, an outside redeemer. In this case, the redeemers are the corporations selling us crap, most of it's crap, unnecessary stuff. And the joy is something within us. It's within all of us. And, um, you know, I did a a pilot program with inner-city teenagers for two years uh, because these kids, uh, black kids, were dropping out of school. 64% of black boys dropping out of high school. And um, what I did was I did just what you mentioned, the arts. I had them making film, making movies, um, and, um, and rap, poetry. And what happened was 100% after our, our, um, our pilot project said they wanted to stay in school. And why? Because they found the joy of learning. You know, education has become so awful that the joy is missing. They're so busy preparing people for exams that the joy of learning, which is a spiritual dimension of, of education or should be, is totally missing. So that, to me, was just one concrete example of what, what you mentioned, that the arts uh, lead to joy. The, the Vedas from the Hindu scriptures say that there's joy in creating. There, there's joy in creating. And that is so true. 
And yet, as you say, the first thing dumped when there's a budget crisis, which there always is in education, is the art departments. And, um, uh, and yet um, computer departments keep going. What do computer departments are gathering information? Okay, fine, that's good. And passing on, that's good. But we don't live by information. Information itself does not make you joyful. It can make you crazy. What's happening on Facebook and Twitter and all this? You know, we need to back up. What does it mean to be human? These are some of the topics I want to deal with in my course that starts tomorrow night with the Shift Network on Thomas Aquinas. We're going to do a seven-week course, and we're going to explore a lot of these topics you and I have, have been dialoguing about. So people can go to my website or something and find out about that. We'd love to have them on board. Uh, we're going to explore a lot of these topics we've been talking about today. So would, uh, so tell us uh, your website, Matthew, so we can find you tomorrow on the Shift Network. Yeah, it's just MatthewFox.org, MatthewFox.org, two T's. Or you could go to Daily Meditations with Matthew Fox. That's my free meditations every day. And there's an announcement there, too, about the program that we'll be starting tomorrow tomorrow night. But we'll have a lot of fun. Okay. So far, we're about 250 students. Well, you know, this is this has been an incredible conversation, Matthew. Um, I want to thank you for all the insight. Uh, it, it's really great to uh, have a, a thinker like you on the show and uh, really be able to uh, kind of dive deep and unpack uh, all we've uh, we've talked about today. So, um, you know, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, I want to thank you, Karen, for your time and for your having a platform like this. It's a wonderful thing to have alternative media we need it so badly and you're one of those pioneers out there and i thank you for it yeah uh we're you know i've been at this more than 13 years now um uh you know it's uh just one of the things i i like you said you know i feel like we've got to keep asking the questions um and uh you know thank you for all you've done and um uh thank you for coming on the show today i really appreciate it great well i enjoyed myself you you have good questions <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, and uh, great, uh, great that you're going to be on the Shift Network tomorrow, and uh, good luck with that. Thank you, Karen. Carry on. Oh. All right. Bye-bye. Um, okay, listeners, uh, I could have spoken to Matthew for a whole other hour, but uh, uh, we even just kind of slammed past our, uh, our uh, half-hour break. So I'm going to be back with you uh, for just a couple minutes, uh, but uh, before I do, I have a message for you from Joe Carson, so please hang on. Let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, an exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is what Drusilla Pettibone said on Dearmist.com. I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I don't think I can comment on it adequately until I've had a chance to watch it a couple more times. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example, the info about hinges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was obviously very beautiful and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast and with so many layers. I am also so pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage. It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com.
yeah, uh, Joe Carson's film, um, Dancing with Gaia. Um, I, I have it in my library, and uh, I, I can't say enough good things about it. Uh, it's definitely one of these uh, that, uh, you know, you want to have, you want to look at regularly. Uh, it really sort of nourishes the soul. And uh, besides the, the video, it comes with a 45-page uh, color mini book, uh, and it's a very reasonably priced. I would really encourage uh, listeners, uh, if you have the discretionary income, um, treat yourself. Uh, go to dancingwithgaia.com um, and uh, make sure you have one of these uh, in, your, uh, in your library. Uh, it, 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 you, you, you'll want it. Trust me, you'll want it. Um, and uh, that uh, that about wraps it up for me for today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Matthew Fox. You know, it, uh, I feel like we really kind of made the connection between these, um, you know, thinkers of medieval times, Hildegard, uh, Thomas of Aquinas, uh, and how important they are for us today uh, because, uh, you know, we just don't have that many contemporary um, Christian leaders, I don't think, um, spiritual leaders, um, you know, that, that we need. So maybe we have to uh, go back into our history uh, to really find um, nourishment and, and guidance. Um, so I will be with you again next Wednesday. Uh, we're getting uh, back on track, and uh, I'll have with me Cindy, uh, well, actually on, on 729 is uh, my next guest. Uh, I'll have uh, Cindy Rassicott. Uh We're going to be talking about uh, the book she just wrote, uh, Finding Venerable Mother, uh, A Daughter's Spiritual Quest to Thailand. Um, and... Um, uh, yeah, so I, I think you will enjoy uh, hearing from her. And um, I will actually be with you on uh, the 15th, uh, offering my uh, monthly inspirational message and uh, in meditation from my book, uh, Goddess Calling. So uh, you want to definitely make sure uh, you have clicked the follow button on the show page uh, so you don't miss uh, you know these uh, these shows that uh, I'm sure you will enjoy, and uh, please do uh, share the link uh, to uh, Voices of the Sacred Feminine here with your friends. Um, and uh, thank you again for your listener loyalty, uh, your guests and my tank listeners. Uh, so please let me keep hearing from you. Uh, let me keep uh, hearing your show ideas and guest ideas. And uh, thank you uh, as always uh, for tuning in. Uh, so uh, have a great week. And uh, bye for now.